Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca. Today's scripture is John 14, verses 1 to 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may be seated. And let's pray. Father, we do ask that as we open your word, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would soften our hearts, that you would help us to understand and receive your word, that you would do a work in us um, to grow in knowing you and loving you, uh, that you would work through us uh, to, to love others well. So we ask that you would meet us here, that you would minister by your word through your spirit, that you would grow us and encourage us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in week three of our Advent series in the Gospel of John. And today we enter the Christmas story from a unique vantage point. From a point in the story that actually comes years after that first Christmas. Gone is the baby in the manger. The wise men, they've long uh, returned home. And Jesus is now all grown up, having spent three years leading his followers, teaching what it means to be part of God's kingdom, demonstrating that reality with great power and miraculous signs. And now he's gathered with his disciples around a table, and they're celebrating a meal that would foreshadow Jesus' death on the cross. And as we look at this story, we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at troubled hearts, present help, and future hope. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, as mentioned, at this point in the life of Jesus, the disciples had been following him for about three years. And they had seen miracles, they had experienced miracles. They saw the, the, the crowds grow, multitudes clamor just to get a glimpse of Jesus. Excitement was growing in their midst. And now just even prior to, to this evening where they gathered, they had just seen Jesus enter Jerusalem amid the shouts of the people. They cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which was essentially... Welcoming him as king. 
You see, momentum was building. Their, their movement was growing. There was anticipation building. The disciples, they're wondering, what could be next? What could be next? And we know that some of them, they, they were expecting that Jesus would, would soon take the next step in his kingdom plans, that he would take the throne of Israel, that he would challenge Roman rule, and that he would bring Israel out from under Roman oppression. We know this because even at that meal, they were arguing amongst themselves. They were clamoring for power. They were fighting to say who would be greatest in this kingdom. But not long into this meal, they would begin to see that they were reading the situation all wrong. See, what they anticipated was not unfolding before their eyes. First, it would be talk of a betrayer in their midst. One who would turn against Jesus for his own selfish gain. And then Jesus, he speaks of leaving them. And not just leaving them, but leaving them and saying that none of them could follow and then finally, Peter steps up and he says, if you go, I'm going with you. Responding to Jesus' message, he says, I'm determined to follow you wherever you go. But Jesus gives him a dose of reality. That, before they would even make it to mourning, Peter would de deny him three times. How, how's that for a dysfunctional family gathering? Now, for a moment, think about all, all of that. Think about all that has happened. Think about all that the disciples had, had been through and put yourself in their place. See, some three years earlier, they met Jesus for the first time. And when they met him, he, he gave them a call. He said, come follow me. Come follow me. And they did. They left family. They left their jobs. Changed their plans. They left their security. Their comfort. And they followed him. And now after all that they had been through, after all that they had given, the one who said, come follow me, he tells them, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you cannot come. Understandably, confusion sets in, followed by worry, disappointment, sadness, maybe even anger. Are you kidding me, Jesus? Are you kidding me? And I think we can relate. I think we can relate to this. Though our circumstances differ, the experience is not wholly different from what many of us have felt at some point in our lives. Maybe this past year, maybe even now as Christmas approaches. Betrayal, failure, loss, unmet expectations, an empty seat at the dinner table, 
a cold shoulder from a loved one, plans that, that don't pan out, overwhelming weight of financial burdens, and then you feel the effects of it all, the worry, the sadness, anger, despair. Different stories, but similar struggles. But here in the midst of it, Jesus speaks. Jesus has a word for his disciples, and he has a word for us. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now, without the greater context of the gospel, these words may seem at the very least trite, and at worst, cruel and uncaring. Like, as though Jesus is not grasping the magnitude of the moment. What do you mean, do not let our hearts be troubled? You're leaving. We've given everything. What do you mean, do not let our hearts be troubled? I think we can relate. But here we need to see that Jesus is not minimizing the troubles. He's not making light of it. And he's not offering empty platitudes. But Jesus is inviting the disciples and us into something. He's inviting us to see troubles in light of a greater reality. He's inviting us to see the troubles in light of the greater story of God. And to discover that there's a way to be okay even in the midst of our troubles. There's a way to be okay even when life isn't going as we would hope. Sam Storms, he notes on this very thing, he says, God is not asking you to treat pain as though it were pleasure or grief as though it were joy, but to bring all earthly adversity into comparison with heavenly glory and thereby be strengthened to endure. And this leads us to our second point, present help. Look again at verse 1. It says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So here Jesus, he directs the disciples to the remedy for their troubled hearts. And he does it with a curious statement. Right? At first, first glance, we look at it, and it seems that he's asking two things of them. He's saying, believe in God. That means trust in God, abide in God, turn to God, seek God, look to Him, and trust in me. But what appears as a distinction that is, is being drawn by Jesus is actually the opposite. It's not that He is calling them to two objects of trust or two kinds of trust. He's calling them to one trust in one God. One commentator puts it this way. He says that this was a radical call to trust in Jesus, just as one would trust in God the Father. And, it, and with it comes a radical promise that doing so would bring comfort and peace to a troubled heart. See, to have faith in God is to have faith in Jesus. To have faith in Jesus is to have faith in God. There's no distinction uh, between trusting Jesus and trusting God. To trust one is to trust the other. But now the disciples, they're grasping, 
you know, wrestling with this, struggling to grasp what Jesus is telling them. And so he helps them to more fully understand. Just after our text in verse 7, he explains, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Then in verse 9, he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And in verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And finally, in verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, as we were reminded uh, by Jake in our first week of Advent, one of the major themes of John's gospel is that if you want to see God, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to behold God's glory, look to Jesus. This is what John's gospel is all about, revealing who Jesus is. And, and ultimately, this is the good news of the Christmas story, that in the very real person of Jesus, a historical figure who was located in a specific time, in a specific place, that he was in fact God incarnate, God in flesh, or as Eugene Peterson paraphrases, God moved into the neighborhood. You see, in Advent, we were reminded that God, the transcendent, became imminent. God, the invisible, became seen. The untouchable, robed in flesh. Jesus, fully God and fully man, he walked the dusty roads of Galilee. And it's, and it's here that we begin to understand why we can trust Jesus in our troubles. First, simply because he's God. Because he's God. And as God, he is sufficient for our troubles. Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks says this, that God hath in himself all power to defend you, all wisdom to direct you, all mercy to pardon you, all grace to enrich you, all righteousness to clothe you, all goodness to supply you, and all happiness to crown you. Can I get an amen? amen. See, Christ City, in, in all our troubles, in all our deficits, in every need, in every bit of life that overwhelms, Jesus says, God is sufficient. Jesus says, I am sufficient. He lacks nothing. He's able to meet whatever need you or I might have. The, the prophet Jeremiah, he agrees. Jeremiah 32, 17, he says, Ah, oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. And then he goes on to say, nothing, nothing. Christ City, say it with me. Nothing, nothing, nothing is too hard for you. Now, it's one thing for someone to have the means, the ability, the resources to help. But it's another thing for that person to be willing. Recently, in the news, it was announced that Taylor Swift became a billionaire. And, and as I read the news article, I admit that for a moment, this thought crossed my mind. 
wouldn't it be nice to know her? Wouldn't it be nice to know her, to, to know somebody with such deep pockets? Come on, somebody else had that thought. <laughs> well, wouldn't it be nice to know her? She's a billionaire. The problem is, is that because I don't know Taylor Swift or Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, their resources are of no help to me because I don't know them because they have no sense of what I need and because there's no relationship, they have no personal concern for my needs. See, though the resources are there, I have no access to them. And in this, I think for some of us, we, we easily understand this idea that God has the resources, that God has deep pockets. I, th I think we, we grasp that. We, we understand that God is sufficient. Right? We can hold on to this idea that, that God is powerful, that He's able to help. But in the midst of our troubles, we wonder if perhaps God has lost sight of us. If perhaps maybe He's a little more distant than I had imagined, a little more removed a little more un, unaffected by my suffering. See, we can have no trouble believing that He can help, but I think in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our, of our suffering, we wonder if He wants to. This past year, I've been doing biblical counseling, and, and in cases that I've read about, and with people that I've sat with, a common theme often comes up. The, the person will say, no one knows what this is like. No one can understand what I'm going through. No one's been through what I have been through. I'm all alone in this. And to a certain extent, there's a measure of truth in this. We have to acknowledge this, that the circumstances of our lives and our suffering is never identical, right? Our capacity, our responses will be different even, even if circumstances are identical. We cannot perfectly know the fullness of one another's trials and suffering. And, and in this reality, we, we may feel alone without anyone that can truly identify with what we are going through. But, as we saw last week, there is one who knows us. There is one who identifies with us, right? In John's gospel, in John 3.16, we saw that God was moved by love. That God loves us. And that, that love has, has brought compassion for us. So much so that he would send his son into suffering, that he would send his son into a dark world, that he would send his son into a world that's wrecked by sin and full of suffering and hopeless. God, he took on flesh. He laid aside his glory and power to become vulnerable. He became like us, identifying with us, not knowing only intellectually what it's like to be human, but knowing it experientially. 
he exposed himself to humanity's temptations, trials, and suffering. He knows what we're going through. I mean, just think about what life was like for Jesus. Reflect for a moment what life was like for Jesus. Born in poverty. Threatened by genocide. As a result, he and his family would become refugees. They would leave their home and travel to a faraway place as refugees. He would return only to be challenged and criticized relentlessly by his own people. Who are you to say these things? Even his own family would would count him crazy. Then he would be betrayed by one of his close followers, denied by one of his closest friends, falsely accused, beaten, spit on, tortured, and condemned to die on a Roman cross. Isaiah describes him as a man of sorrows, one acquainted with grief. I think he knows what we're going through. I think he understands. I think he knows our trouble. I think he knows our suffering. And this is good news for us. But there's more. Not only does he know our suffering, not only has he suffered with us, but he suffered for us. Which means he knows the weight of sin that is underneath it all. He received the punishment that we deserve so that we could be free from that sin, so that we could have hope in our troubles as we're reconciled to God and set free to discover the fullness of life that only God can give us. See, here's the beauty of Christmas, that that in Jesus we have one who is sufficient and one who is compassionate, one who is willing and one who is able, one who will meet us in our struggles and miraculously he comforts us, he strengthens us, he encourages us, he leads us. And one day... He will deliver us from from it all. This brings us to our third point. Future hope. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So here, Jesus, he's, he's seeking to further comfort his, his followers. And so he turns their gaze heavenward. He says, think about what's to come. But this begs a question, what exactly is he pointing to? What is it exactly that, that will comfort them on that day? What, what is it about heaven that offers us comfort here and now? Now, growing up in church, I had two distinct memories about what I thought heaven was like. The first came out of a Sunday school lesson. I was was a young boy, and the teacher was teaching us about heaven, and the teacher made a comment, and this is the one thing that stuck with me that I learned, very valuable. The teacher said, do you know what I'm most excited about for in heaven? The food. I was young, I thought, good food, I'm okay with that. 
A little later, on a few occasions at the end of Sunday services, after singing the final hymn, the pastor would step and would say, Hallelujah. That's a taste of heaven. I took that to mean an eternity of singing slow songs to organ music. <laughs> the food excited me more, to be honest. But what do we think about heaven? What is it about heaven that makes any difference now? There, there's a hymn. It was popularized by Elvis Presley. And it was written to capture the hearts of people with the hope of heaven. It's called Mansions on a Hilltop. And the author writes this. It says, I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransomed will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. Though often tempted, tormented, and tested, and like the prophet, my pillow is stone, and though I find here no permanent dwelling, I know he'll give me a mansion, my own. Don't think me poor or deserted or lonely. I'm not discouraged because I'm heaven-bound. I'm just a pilgrim in search of a city. I want a mansion, a robe, a crown. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder, we will never more wander, but walk on streets that are purest gold. So think about those words for a minute. What's missing? What's missing? See, while the hymn rightly aims to stir our affection for heaven, like my Sunday school lesson, like my misunderstanding of, of a pastor's closing statements, it, it misses the mark. It misses the most important thing. Jesus. Streets of gold, that's fine. Good food, that's fine. Singing, praising the Lord, that's fine. But if you're missing Jesus on that day, you're missing everything. And, and I don't share you know, these things to disparage a Sunday school teacher or the writer of a hymn uh, or a previous pastor. I share this because I think it touches on something that we are all prone to do. When we think about that day, when we think about hoping in what's to come, that we set our hope on a place or a destination or a thing. I look forward to food. I look forward to comfort. I look forward to gold and riches, a mansion, a place to dwell. Again, not necessarily bad things, but they're missing the most significant thing. In this, John Piper challenges us. He says, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness with all the friends you have ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflicts or natural disasters, he asks, could you be satisfied with heaven? Could you be satisfied with heaven 
if Christ were not there. And I admit um, that at times my heart is still like that little boy in Sunday school. I admit that, that sometimes I go, yeah, I think I could. Just give me those things and I'll be okay. And if our hearts say yes to this, let us know that we are fooled. We are fooled by believing that, that even one of those things, let alone all those things, would, would satisfy us. Even for a short span in this life, we are completely fooled if we believe that. See, history, and perhaps our own experience, has shown that even the fullest and most perfect life that we can build will never be enough to satisfy our hearts. Invariably, if, if we seek our satisfaction in anything other than Jesus, no matter how good, no, noble, or beautiful it is, we will always find ourselves longing for more. More money, more security, more appreciation, more pleasure, more comfort. We'll always need more. It's because we were made for something more than these things. On this one commentator notes, he says, the soul's deepest thirst is for God himself, who has made us so that we can never be satisfied without him. See, if we place our hope in heaven and believe that heaven as a place will satisfy us and deliver us from our troubles, we're going to be disappointed because the only thing that can meet us in our troubles and satisfy our hearts is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's what he's teaching us. He's teaching us that true life, true satisfaction, fulfillment, flourishing, even as troubles abound, is only found in him. Only found in him. Will we look to him? Will he be the one that we look to in our troubles? Will he be the one that we hope in for eternity? Will he be the one that we look to to satisfy our hearts? Or like many at Christmas, who are in, enchanted by the lights and the stores and the sale signs, continue to strive after other things. Where will you look at this Christmas? What will you turn to? Who will you trust in? A story is told of a little boy who lived in a small trailer in a rundown trailer park. One day while playing with a friend in his, his little two-room trailer, the friend asks, don't you wish you had a real home? And the boy paused, he thought for a moment, and then he replied, well, we, we do have a real home and actually very good home. We just don't have a house to put it in. See, the boy understood the difference between house and home, and just as Jesus wants us to see the same thing, that our true home in this life or in the life to come is found in him, not in things, in places, or things like that. And when Jesus speaks of his father's house with many rooms, it's language that highlights relationship not stuff. It points to intimacy. It's language that is intended to shift our focus from what to who. 
to Jesus. And today he's inviting us on this third Sunday of Advent again to turn to him, to bring our troubles to him, and to set our hopes in him. This Christmas, in whatever place we find ourselves, whether this is a time of joy or a time of sorrow, may we incline our hearts to Jesus. May we trust Him as our present help, look to Him for our future hope. May we live now in light of who He is and what He's done and what He will bring about on the day when He returns. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we wonder at who you are, God and man, God in flesh dwelling among us, God entering into our sorrow, into our suffering, identifying with us, knowing us, and saving us. Lord Jesus, we praise you. Lord Jesus, we wonder at you. And Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us, that you would help us to turn our hearts from, from trusting in things to trusting in you, from trusting in places to trusting in you. We pray that you would be the one who is sufficient. We pray that we would rest in your compassion for us. And we pray that you would help us even in the midst of our troubles. Cause us to hope in you, to long for you, and to look to you for all that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name.